mentioned, it goes so well with our message this morning as we talk about eternal eternal election in God our Savior. So we're so thankful for him. Our scripture reading this morning is uh, beginning in Psalm 135, our Old Testament reading, and then we'll be going over to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. So Psalm 135, I ask you to please turn there in your Bibles. And this is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord and whose courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds to rise in the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from the storehouses. It is he who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and of beast. Who is in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Amen and praise God. Now turn over with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. And we'll begin in verse 1 through 13. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears with, with, witness with the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I have hated. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you once again for your word, Lord. And I just pray that you would be with all of us this morning. Please give us illumination, insight into your precious word. Help us to understand. And I pray that you would bring be with me, Lord God, to bring forth your word clearly and faithfully, that you may be honored and glorified, that we may be edified and strengthened in our faith and in, in our trust in a sovereign, holy, and righteous God, not in ourselves, but in you and in you alone. So we ask your blessing upon this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and praise God. Okay. Um, you can see the title is God's Sovereign Election. And I make no apologies as pastor. I am convinced of this particular teaching, this biblical teaching, this biblical doctrine that God is sovereign in election, that he chooses whom he will to save, and he passes over others. Again, I'm absolutely convinced, and there's no shame at all in preaching it. But I do want to say that I appreciate the difficulties and the struggles that some of you may have with this doctrine. Because if you do believe in this doctrine, in this teaching, as it's taught biblically, you have gone through that struggle and you've gone through that time of questioning and those, and those difficulties. And some still, still, they may remain still some, some of those questions, but we trust in the Lord. So I just want to say that before we get into this message, because it's a clear teaching, but it is a difficult teaching. It's a hard one to grasp for sure. And that's why last week, we focused in on the first few verses, and it was. I told you how important it was, as we're learning this, as we're going through this, that you have two attitudes in your heart and in your mind. Number one, the first one is that we talked about, you must have a heart for the lost. You have to have a zeal for those who do not know Jesus Christ, and you need to be willing to love and to preach the gospel with all your heart, with all sincerity to those who do not know Christ. We don't just sit back and kind of wait for the Spirit to work. We do what we're called to do. That's number one. And then number two, we were reminded not to presume on the spiritual advantages that we have, just like Israel did. They had all the advantages, but that doesn't save you because you go to church, because you have the Bible, because we have the things that we have. It's only faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that saves. Amen? So now we come to this section this morning, really beginning in verse 6. And the question is why, you know, and that's the kind of question we have. Why? Why Why are some saved and others are not? You know, is it something in us? Is it, is it you know, really all from God? What? What? That's the question that we wrestle with. You know, there, there's, you have family members. You, you both heard the gospel, you know, the, the same gospel that, that has saved you and yet your sister, your sibling is, is not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? And that's kind of the question that's going on here because, again, the Israelites, the Jews had that, those advantages, and yet it didn't seem like many were coming to faith. Right? They had all the advantages. Why weren't more why weren't there more believers among them? You know, we could say the same thing for ourselves in the day that we live in as Christians. We have in this nation for the longest time, we have been blessed, haven't we? We've had those advantages. We've had God's blessings. We have churches on every corner, Bibles more than we know what to do with. I mean, there's some Christians in different countries, well, they would 
give everything they had to have what we have in terms of a Bible just to read. We have all these things at our disposal, all these blessings, access to the truth, and yet we can look around and we just see so much unbelief in our midst. Well, Paul explains why some believe and others do not. And his answer, and I want you to hear this, his answer is grounded in God's sovereign election. That's where the grounding of his answer is. God sovereignly elects certain individuals while he passes over others. Note this well, and I want you to understand this. Paul doesn't view sovereign election as a problem. He views it as the answer to the question, why some are saved and why others are not. It's grounded in God's sovereign election and his sovereignty, and you just have to come to grips with that because that's who he is, and that is what he does. So what is election? Um, I'm just going to quote from J.I. Packer because he puts it very succinctly and very nicely. Sovereign election is the biblical doctrine. I'm sorry. The biblical doctrine of election is that before creation, God selected out of the human race those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. That's J.I. Packer. This doctrine was not invented by Augustine. It wasn't brought forth by Luther or even John Calvin, as many people like to think. Oh, this is a, a Calvin came up with this doctrine. It's not. It's, it's a biblical doctrine. Ekloge, that is the word for election. And that means divine selection. It means to be chosen, to be, to be set apart in that specific way. Chosen by God. So election is God's sovereign choice of a people to salvation and service to Him. Chosen in eternity, called in time, living for Him and living with Him in all eternity. So, 1 Peter 1. There's many times this word is actually used. Peter says, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. There's a distinction, right? They're elect. It's a, it's a group of people, certain group of people, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And Matthew, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 24. And here we're talking about the uh, end times, the Lord's return. And Matthew 24, in verse 22, we're told this, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. This is during that tri- that tribulation period. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those God chose before the foundation of the world, sovereignly chose, for their sake, he cut those days short. Then if you want to go down to verse 24, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And there's that distinction. There's his chosen ones. And then in verse 31, we read this. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So God has a people. God has those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world to be his. And it's not just new to, again, it's not, doesn't come about with the reformers, not even the New Testament, but throughout scripture, we see this doctrine of sovereign election. Do you think Abraham was sovereignly elected by God? Absolutely. Oh, he was called from, from the land of Ur to follow him, but he had been chosen by God long before that. What made him leave his family? He says, okay, yeah, I guess I'll follow you, God, and, and I'm gonna go ahead and do that. We're gonna talk about Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau, 
We could talk about David and Saul, right? God, David was God's elect and chosen one. Think of Jeremiah, who before he was born was set apart from, from his mother's womb to what he would be doing. That's all part of this. You can't really separate election and calling. You know, as we talk about predestination, it all goes together. If you're called, you're elect. You're not simply called to service. You're called to salvation and then to service as well. It's really important to remember that. So David was truly saved as he was serving the Lord. He wasn't just called to be the king. He was saved by, by God and then called. In the New Testament, the apostles, John 15, 16. We have that. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your faith should be, should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father's Father in my name, he may give it to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. He, he came and he called his, that's so radical. When he called his apostles, what did they do? Did they think about it? No, no, no. They left everything immediately. If you especially read Gospel of Mark, immediately they left and they followed Jesus Christ. They left everything to do that. Now, a question I have, just a rhetorical question for you. Could they have said no to him? Could Peter have said no? Matthew say no to Christ, to, to following him? Was, was it something in them that they could say, um, we said, follow me. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, well, let me think about it. You know, those people were called by him. Those who are elect by Christ will follow him. They could not say no, yet they freely chose to follow him. Do you understand? They couldn't say no because of their election. They couldn't say no because of the effectual calling that God had upon their lives. You might be thinking, well, maybe I don't know, Pastor. There's that free will. They, if they really thought about it, they listen. They willingly said yes, but there was no way that they could say no. Just like Judas, could he have said yes to Jesus Christ? I, yes, Jesus, I do believe you. I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm not going to reject you and, and trade on you. Could he have done that? John seventeen twelve makes it clear. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which is given to me. I have guarded them, and none of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It was happening all along. Judas was never going to believe. He wasn't elect. He wasn't called by the Lord. He didn't have, he was left to himself, and in ourselves we don't have the capacity, the ability to say yes to Christ. We can't change ourselves. He must change us. You understand? What about the necessity of sovereign election? It's necessary for us. It's necessary. Why? Because of the nature of our sin, man. That's why it's, he has to do something in us. If he leaves us to ourselves, we will not follow him. That's the nature of sin. That's a result of the fall, right? That's the depth of sin, the seriousness of sin, how pervasive sin is. The result of that sin leaves us unable, man, and unwilling in and of ourselves to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Do you get, if, if you get, and we've talked about this obviously through Romans, the idea of total inability or total depravity, then sovereign election follows like day follows night, like night follows day. It just flows. You need that because if you understand how sinful we are, how deep our rebellion is against God, that we're not going to choose them left to ourselves. You'll see the necessity of, of this sovereign election. He has to do something. 
in order to bring us to himself. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 tells us, this is our spiritual state. You were dead, man. You were dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the son of disobedience. That's all of us before Jesus Christ comes into our lives. That's the power that we're under. That's the, that's the meaning. We're, we're, dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Romans 8, Romans 8, 7 and 8, we've talked about this. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. You're not going to submit to God's law. No matter how much it's preached or it's taught to you, you're not going to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's not able to. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't do something that's going to please him. You say, okay, you're a good person. Then that way I'm going to give you my salvation. It's not. It's not. So we see that by necessity, you need sovereign election because if we're left to ourselves, what are we going to do? Think about our own experience. And this is just a little more, just a little more subjective, but not too much. Think about freedom in the, in the moral realm. Our own experience teaches us that the more freedom that you have, the more freedom that we get in the moral realm, the tendency is to what? It's to drift farther and farther away from God. That's all it is. That's what we do. That's our natural tendency. We're always going left. It's like gravity. You know, we're always, it's always going, going down on us. That's, and so when we have that freedom, we're always going to drift farther and farther away from God, not to Him. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that in our experience. It doesn't work like that in real life. What happened when they took away no fault divorce, when you couldn't sue for divorce? The divorce go away? No, it skyrocketed to this very day. It's a tragedy what's going on. Abortion, rare, safe, legal. Okay, did that law help, or did it skyrocket? See, when you take, when you give people that freedom, especially in the moral realm, it's always going to go farther away from God. Look at the time we're living in right now. There's a refusal to enforce laws. We want to abolish the police. What's happening? Okay, go to San Francisco. Go to different parts of San. Would you want to go there? You want to go to L.A. where they just broke into Nordstrom's and had that? You guys saw that on the news, how they just had it. Are you kidding me? We're like, how could this be happening? Because we're giving them freedom in that area, in that moral area. And when that happens, this is the way we live. Go to Portland. Would you like to stay there? New York. It's lawless. There's lawlessness. Kensington in Philadelphia. Go ahead. See, that's the, that's what freedom gets you in this area. Sexuality. Think about our sexuality in that way. We have freedom in our sex, area of sexuality. Look where we're at today. It's not just being promiscuous. It's not just, just, you know, the, the adultery. It is the homosexuality. It is the transgender. Look, look at the mess one. It is the pornography. Where do we find ourselves today? With all that freedom. Are we heading towards God? Are we seeing it and loving God? No, 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 no. We're going just the opposite. That's our tendency. Left ourselves, given that freedom. That's what we do. Just a simple, you know, just, Hey man, if you're in the classroom and your teacher walked out, what did you do? When that freedom, when you had the freedom of the teacher not being there, right? You would throw the erasers, you'd, you know, be talking, turn around and, you know, it'd be chaos. That's what it is, man. That's what it is. That's a tendency that we have. Okay. Back to our text. Why does God, God's word seemingly fail because so few seem to be coming to faith in Jesus Christ. What explains that? And that's what Paul is getting at here. Why did some believe and others did not? So he asked the question, did God's word fail in verse 6? It's not as though God's word failed. No. For all who descended from Israel, from all, for not all who descended from Israel are Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there's offspring. See what he's saying there? 
there's a distinction between the physical and spiritual descendants. The distinction, and listen to this, the distinction rests in the doctrine of sovereign election. That's what the distinction is. It's in God's choosing. His word hasn't failed, man. It's not failing. It did exactly what it intended to do, to save his chosen ones out of there. So all these people are rejecting him. And no, no, no. He is bringing his people to himself. Right? So it started with the 120 in the upper room, and then it went to many priests, and then it went to Pentecost, and thousands came to Christ. That was his sovereign purpose in that. So it didn't fail in that way. Now, it might seem to because the majority of Israel rejected him. But his people continue to come to him. Do you understand? That's a big deal. Being part of the physical nation, the ethnic, had advantages to be sure, but it didn't save anybody, and it never does. It's those who by grace are called by the Lord, who believe in Jesus Christ. They were considered Abraham's offspring. And you know what? That is true for every single believer in this on this planet. That we who are elected by God, who are called by him, who come to faith, have more in common with each other than anybody else, even your closest relative. Who's closer? You have two Jew, two Jewish men or one converted Jew and one converted Samaritan. Who's closer? It would be closer. See, now, now ethnically, you say, hey, you know, you're, you're part of our tribe. You're part of, you know, you're part of us. We have these things in common. But no, no, no. Spiritually, and this transcends any other kind of relationship, is our spiritual relationship in Jesus Christ. We are closer to one another in Jesus Christ than we are with anybody else. That's because we have been set apart. We've been elected. We've been called. So now we know what sin is. We know what it means to be saved. We know what it means to trust in Christ. We have a different worldview than, even with your brother or sister who's not converted. That's why they say, well, man, you've changed. Why don't you see things the way I do? Because we see the way things they truly are from God's word. So that we are much closer to one another in that way. We have one mind. We're a new creation in Jesus Christ. We share those same values that even our closest family members don't necessarily share with us. As an example, this is why critical race theory and Black Lives Matter need to be far away as they can be, especially in the church, because it does just the opposite. CRT, BLM, is such a scourge, it's so divisive and destructive because it demands loyalty, partiality, and preference to a particular ethnic group. So that's about the ethnicity and keeping that close. And while openly disparaging another group, so it plays on grievances, it makes distinctions, in the name of fairness, justice, it elevates one group over another. Instead, with regeneration, that erases the distinctions between us. It denounces partiality. It doesn't seek vengeance or fairness as such in that way, however they define fairness. Galatians 3 tells us this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized in the Christ that put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're forgiven. Diverse ethnic groups were brought together. Former enemies are now one. I say this all the time between all of us. If we weren't in Christ Jesus, we probably wouldn't like each other too much. I mean, we, in other ways, a lot of us don't have too much in common, but we have Christ and that means everything. And that means that transcends any difference that we have in our personalities and our backgrounds. We are one in Christ. Amen and praise God. That goes back to his 
election. God's word is not failing. It's doing exactly, Paul's saying, what's it, what it was intended to do, and that is to bring people into the kingdom. What do you think Matthew 28 is all about when he says, go make disciples of all nations? And I know... Uh, our post-mill friends are like, let's disciple the nations and make, you know, bring them all to the Lord. There's a place for that, absolutely. But primarily, it's about you going out, us going out, and bringing the gospel in order to bring out God's elect from those nations. His people that he's chosen. He has his people everywhere. So when we go down to the pride convention, what we pray before we go out is, Lord, we know that you have your people here. And may your word be effective in their hearts as we preach the gospel. We're not going to sit there and try to convince them or try to, you know, get them to believe or to think. We know that God has his people there and we're praying that he would use us to proclaim the gospel, to bring them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're making disciples of all nations. Paul says, not all of Israel is Israel, right? Not everybody who comes from the, from the physical belongs to the Lord per se. It's those who truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 2, 28, 29, he said this earlier, for no one's a Jew who's one merely outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. It's not just the outward sign. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, and that's conversion by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you understand? It's God who chooses. It's God who does this. So he's talking about the nation. Not all Israel is Israel. It's those who are truly called out by God who belong to him. Then he gets a little more specific. It's kind of like a funnel. He narrows down the teaching, gets a bit more specific in verse 7. He says, not all the children are of Abraham because there is offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. Okay? Two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The promise is bound up not in just a person. The promise is bound up in God's sovereign choice of Isaac for salvation, but also from whom the Savior would descend. He would come from him. So it's not just the physical descendants or the descendants of the flesh, but those chosen by God. That's to whom, the ones to whom the promise belongs. Every single believer's spiritual connection goes back to Isaac, right? You say we we could trace our line back at spiritually connected, going you know to Abraham, going all the way back. <clears throat> Isaac's included in that. Is Ishmael? Do you ever say anybody? Oh no, he's he's the same. no. We don't go back to Ishmael. We go back to Isaac. Why? Because God chose him. Just as God chose him, so you could be sure if you believe that he has set his love on you as well. And there's great comfort in that. and There's great security in that because if your salvation depends on you, you're never really going to know. And that's where you get to the area where it says, well, I could lose my salvation. I could lose this. If it's from you, then that's a real possibility. But it's from him. There's no possibility of that because he will not leave or forsake you. He will not lose one that he has given to us. He keeps us. Amen? If it's from us, and we kind of like it that way because we love our autonomy, we love our freedom, then it depends on us. Right? It depends on God and God alone. So then he goes to Jacob and Esau, verses 10 through 13. He says this, 
<clears throat> and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Okay, so now he's really focusing in on this idea and doctrine and teaching of election. Jacob and Esau, same parents, same act, you know, we were conceived at the same time, born and raised in the same circumstances. Because some people might say, well, you know, Ishmael was a slave's daughter, you know, God maybe favored Isaac, you know, in, in that way. So Jacob and Esau, where's the distinction? Where's that? What is it about them and their actions that made God choose one and not the other? See, he's saying, Paul's saying, it's nothing that they did, nothing that they would do, nothing that they could do. What about their actions? The difference can't be explained by what they didn't do or what they did do so before they did anything, good or bad. So it's not about works in any single way. Well, he's a little bit better. He's not as good. <clears throat> Had God looked down the halls of time, and this is the, the a real popular teaching in terms of, we talked about this last time, the foreknowledge. God looks down the hall of time, see what you're going to do, and based on that, he elects you. He chooses you based on... The fact that he sees you choosing him. That doesn't work that way. Had God looked down the hall of time and see that one day Jacob would freely choose and trust him, so on that basis elect Jacob over Esau? No. There's not, that's not even, that's not even a clue. That's nothing here with that. Listen, both of them, Jacob and Esau were sinners. Esau, you know, we, we know his pride. We know his, his self-preservation. Was Jacob an angel? <laughs> what was he? He was a trickster. He was. He was a con man. He was, he was a manipulator. He was opportunistic in so many ways. Let me ask you this. Did he freely choose God? Did he freely of his own volition choose God? Even, even though he was chosen by God, did he freely choose God? Oh man, he wrestled with God. He wrestled against God. God had to subdue him, just like he has to subdue you, just like he has to subdue me, because in ourselves we are not going to come to him. Paul's a beautiful picture of this. Paul clearly speaks of his election in Galatians 1, 14 through 16. Look at this. I was advancing. He's talking about who he was before Christ. I was advancing in Judaism beyond all my of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had what set me apart when before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son. Look at that. When he who had set me apart before I was born. Before I was born, he was set apart. He knew that's election. He was called by God at that time, even though he had lived a life contrary to God. He wasn't choosing Christ. He wasn't looking to Christ. He was advancing in Judaism. And yet he's looking back and said, even in the midst of this, of my sin, I know as I look back, I was already called. And that's where that calling is. That's where that election is. I was chosen by God at that point. He was elect, yet he, he did, let me ask you, did he freely choose God? Of his own volition? Did Paul freely choose him of his own volition? Did he weigh everything out and say, okay, I've heard this gospel. It sounds pretty good to me. I think I'll come to believe in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. 
Now when he went on his way, he, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did he come of his own free volition to the Lord Jesus Christ? No, he was subdued by God. And each and every one of you, if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, the same thing happens to us. Not as dramatic as Saul was converted, but the same thing nonetheless. We do not look for him. We're not trying to figure it out and, and search for him and come to this place of our own volition after thinking about it and knowing about it. No, no, no. He subdues us by his love, by his grace, all those whom he has elected and called out. He makes us willing to believe. And if every one of you, if you examine yourself and you think about your salvation, you're going to see that moment and know that moment when it finally made sense to you. When your eyes were opened, when you saw this, how how desperately sinful you were and how wonderfully gracious he is and how much he loves you and you and you confessed and professed Christ, repented of your sin and believed on him. You know that, that he subdued you, that it's not about you choosing him, but that he chose you. You just come to realize that when he opened your eyes. Amen and praise God. He gets all the glory. Otherwise, there's something in it for us. It's something that I've done, right? He saw that I was going to do this, And so on that basis, he chooses me instead of saying, because of my purposes, I chose you. Listen to this. Faith does not determine a person's election. Rather, election determines who will have faith because faith itself is a gift from God. It's not something that we muster up. It's not something that comes prepackaged with us. We just have to find it and open it up. It's a gift that he gives to us. It's from outside of us, and he gives it to us. Ephesians 2 eight tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's not something that you've done or have. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one will boast. What do we have to boast about? If you say, I chose Christ, even in eternity, Pastor, he saw that I was going to do him, then you have something to boast about him. I chose him, so now I can say, God, I chose you. No, I did not choose you. You chose me. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the, the idea behind this. Not that Jacob was somehow better in any way. Faith is a result of God's sovereign election and not the cause of it. That's a good one. It's not the result of sovereign election but the cause of it. Well, what's the basis for God's sovereign election as we come towards the end? What does Paul give as the reason for God's sovereign choice? And this is what really bums us out. This is where the tension comes. Look at verse 11b. It says, well, I'll begin in verse 11. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue because of work, because I continue, not because of works, because of but because of him who calls. Sorry about that. <clears throat> the basis for God's sovereign election. What does Paul give as the reason for this? Was it something about Jacob? Nope. Was it something about his personality, his integrity, his charisma, his intellect, his work ethic, his morality? Was it anything about him in particular? Is there anything about you in particular that God should look at and say, I like you the way you are. I love you. You're, you're okay. You know, those other people, they're not so good, but you're, you're a good one. Is there anything? You know your heart and you know what the answer is, eh? That's nothing. So why? Here's the answer. In order that God's purpose and election might stand might continue, may remain. 
his purpose, his plan, his decree, his reasons. I know as I'm saying that to you, that doesn't satisfy. It doesn't. It doesn't satisfy us. We want more. We want, oh, okay, yeah, his purpose is to create that. But, but why? Why? Why me and not, not that person? Why, why it's a, and we have so many questions and Paul's going to deal with these next, next, in the next section. His purpose, his plan, his decree should be enough. We want to know exactly why. But you know Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, and I know it's overused. It's used for a reason. And it says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That is his secret will. That's not for us to know. That's a place we don't venture to. We don't go that far. We don't question God in that way. We're going to see that next week. Because he's God and you're not. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So what he gives us to know, we know, we live in that. That we may not, that we may do all the words of this law. So the secret will of God. This is where we need to trust. And those hard questions, those difficulties that are real, that are very real, the struggles that we have when you really think about this doctrine, and we're going to do this more next week, you're going to see some of the difficulties with it from our vantage point, from our perspective. And they're very real, right, for, for us. And But but there's where that trust comes in. And I, that's what true faith is. It's not blindly trusting. It's trusting with the knowledge that we have, right? He doesn't just cause us to follow him not having any clue or evidence. We believe in the Trinity. It sounds so silly, doesn't it? Oh, one God, three persons, how's that working? It's always distorted. We do believe it by faith, but we have evidence for it, real good evidence in the Word of God. When you see the Father's God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Can we explain it completely? No, it's a mystery, man. But we know that much, and, and we take the rest by faith because... He said it, it's true, and he gives us, it's the same here. We know that, we know that we can't do this. We know, left on our own, that, that we're constrained to our, to our own nature. That's why I said, when I was talking about earlier, we're always going to do what we, we're going to do. We're not left to our freedom, we're not going to come to him. Why? Because we're constrained by our nature, and our nature's sinful, and it's fallen. We're slaves to sin, we're in bondage to sin, so we're given that freedom, we're going to go that way. And that's, that's what's going on here with this. And we need to understand that there's a place we need to trust him. He gives us what we need to know. And he promises that even if we don't know it fully now, one day it will be revealed to us. And we'll fully know why. Right? So sometimes you see those movies. And I'm going to give you kind of a silly illustration. I don't want to take away from the sermon, but I think it might help us in this, this idea of not necessarily knowing how it's done. We have questions and, and doubts. But one day we will know. One day we will know. How many of you remember the, the Karate Kid from back in the day? You remember Mr. Miyagi was training Danielson to do that? And he promised him that, you know, you need to listen to me and, and I'll train you for this tournament. And But you need to trust me and listen to me. And he said, okay, I will. So what does he start doing? He starts telling him to do everything for him. You know, paint to the fence, uh, you know, wax on, wax off, do the floor. Remember, remember that? And he's telling him to do all that stuff. And eventually Danielson's not understanding. And he's saying, what are you doing? You know, you're not training me. I'm, the tournament's coming up and I'm washing and I'm cleaning. I'm your slave. I'm doing all these things. Why am I doing this? And he was frustrated and he had those questions and he couldn't understand it. But then Mr. Miyagi said, you know, show me paint to the fence. Show me wax on, wax off. And then he started to, and then Danielson was bought. And then at that moment, he realized 
He didn't have to say a word. He understood. I know that's a silly illustration, but it kind of points to this idea where we just don't get it sometimes when it comes to to this idea of God's sovereign election. One day we will know clearly. We will see fully. We do know for certain that it's not our works. It's not anything we do because it says here in the word, but it's him who calls us. But we know that that we're going to have those questions and we might struggle with them, but we trust him. And one day we'll fully understand. Now, as you might well imagine, Paul's teaching is not going to sit well. (laughs) It still doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't. It's divides so many good Christians. We love each other in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want it to be a dividing point for us as Christians because we will be in heaven together if we love the Lord or not. You know, I mean, if we love the Lord, I should say, uh, whether or not we hold a sovereign election at this moment or, you know, just not quite understanding that way. We need to be charitable with each other. We do need to be very charitable. Because at one time, you who believe in sovereign election probably didn't. You had to come to understand it as well. Right? So, so we need, we need that. And Paul knows that it doesn't sit well. That it's going to bring about all kinds of pushback. Right? What's some pushback that it deals with? So when you think of sovereign election, it sounds wonderful. God is sovereign. We're not. He's good. We're bad. He, we can't. He can. He does. Right? That sounds good. But when you start questioning and say, well, what about the fairness in this? Where's, that means that some people are never going to have a chance to be saved. That's the, you know, what, what about the, that, that person who, they're not, God's not letting them believe even if they want to believe. That's, that's another, Objection, you know, he's going to stop them from believing that we're going to deal with these next week. So hold everything before you start answering or, you know, getting too, too upset. But, but these are some of the, they, they come to, what about my free will? To, 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 that, am I a robot then? Is that what it is? Doesn't that make God capricious and arbitrary? You know, just kind of fatalistic. Well, God has his plan here and he's going to do this and somebody's going to, these are real objections. And these are some of the things we wrestle with. Now, it's a beautiful doctrine, there's no doubt. But these things need to be considered. And what I love so much is that Paul considers them, man. He considers, he anticipates and answers. He knows what objections are going to come. So, he's going to go on to, to state those objections, and then he's going to answer those objections now, you might not be satisfied with his answer, but he does it nonetheless. But you need to understand the very fact that these objections are coming, are on their way, vindicate or validate this doctrine even more because it's not that people don't understand the doctrine. Well, just let me explain it to you. They do understand exactly what Paul's teaching and they don't like it. And they want to push back and say, but what about this? And what about that? Well, that's what Paul deals with next week. But for our, in closing, just for our sake, understand, once you get this and understand it, this gives great assurance, as we were talking about in Acts chapter 8, because it doesn't depend on you. You don't have to wonder and worry, oh, am I really saved? Oh, you know, am I doing this or that? I know that God is sovereign. I know that he transformed me. I know his promises are to save and to keep me and he'll never leave me or forsake me. He's going to see me safely home because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on God who's sovereign and who is able. If it depends on me, then I'm on shaky ground because I change and I come and go like the wind. He doesn't change 
and he brings us home. His promises are sure and true. So that adds great assurance to us. If you get this doctrine, it helps you so much with your assurance of faith because it's not about you. It's all about him.